Today we hear God's word from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't need to spend much time this morning giving you the historical background of Zechariah, because the background is exactly the same as last week. Haggai and Zechariah were partners in ministry, and the messages that we are looking at this week were preached within two months of the messages that we heard from Haggai last week. Now, if you weren't here last week, I'll tell you quickly that the setting is after the people of Judah have started to come back from the exile, and they are discouraged because they're just getting started on rebuilding what looks like it is to be a downsized temple, and because the surrounding peoples of the land mocked and threatened as they began to rebuild. And so the work ground to a halt for 17 years until God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them by gracious promises to resume the work. Now, for us Christians living in the New Testament era, there are many parallels between our experience and the experience of Judah after the exile. And so we stand in the same need of encouragement and support from Zechariah, for we are called in the New Testament exiles and strangers in the world. We have no earthly king, but like the post-exilic Jews, we wait for the coming of the Messiah. We, we wait for the coming of King Jesus from heaven, which is richly foretold in the book of Zechariah. And we too are tempted to see the church as small and weak in comparison with the mighty world powers arrayed against her. And so we too need to see the connection between our small acts of obedience and God's glorious purposes and promises. Now, if you'll turn to the book of Zechariah, just a few pages to the left of Matthew, uh, I'll give you the map that you need to understand uh, the terrain of these chapters. And I think we have a slide that will help you see the outline of Zechariah. But Yeah, there it is. So Zechariah is a big book, so I'm only going to show you the first six chapters this morning, and I'm mainly going to focus on chapters 3 and 4, which are the large central uh, visions at the bottom of that uh, triangle there. And the first six chapters of this book, Zechariah records eight visions that he saw in all, all in one night, and they are arranged in a 3-2-3 three, three pattern. First three visions are chapters 1 and 2, the two longer central visions are recorded in chapters 3 and 4, respectively. And then there are a final three visions recorded in chapters 5 uh, and 6. So 
So I'll kind of walk you down those steps one, two, and three, and we'll spend most of our time this morning uh, on the restoration of the priesthood and the temple, which is chapters three and four. In the first vision, which if you've got your book, uh, Bible open to Zechariah, you can see it in uh, chapter one, verse eight. We see a man riding on a horse. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. So there's a man riding a horse. There's other horses behind him. He's standing among the myrtle trees. Two parts of this picture I want to unpack, the man and the myrtles. First, the man. The man is Jesus. How do we know this? Well, in verses 11 and 12, he's called the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord. This is a common way that Christ is described in the Old Testament. We see a similar appearance of Christ as the angel of the Lord in Joshua 5, where he appeared to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army. And here, too, he's pictured as the commander of the Lord's army. He's riding a horse in front of all these other horses. And this man is all-knowing, all-seeing, sovereign over the nations, and he sends out his armies to report on the state of the earth. And then we see in verse 12, this commander of the Lord's army, this king of kings, takes on the role of a priest, an intercessor for the people of God. And this idea of king and priest coming together in the one man, Messiah Jesus, is expanded upon throughout the visions of Zechariah. So the man's Jesus. Now why is he standing among the myrtles? Well, the myrtle is a small shrub-like tree, and it's an apt picture of the humbled, downsized condition of the people of God as they are returning from exile. But also the myrtle was one of the trees used by the people of God to construct the booths, the huts in which they lived during the Feast of Tabernacles. And Haggai, last week, Zechariah's ministry colleague, has just preached a sermon on the last day of Tabernacles, in which he told the discouraged people of God who were rebuilding the downsized temple that although the temple might be smaller, the latter glory of this house would be even greater than the former. And then at the end of Zechariah, when he's describing events surrounding the second coming of Christ, he writes this in 1416. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So what's going on with all these tabernacle imageries in Haggai and Zechariah? At least two things. First... The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the faithfulness of God to his people during the humbling journey through the desert in which they lived in booths and tents. And this was all the more meaningful to this generation, which is returning now from the humiliation of exile. But second, the Feast of Tabernacles was also called the Feast of Ingathering. It was a celebration of thanksgiving for the harvest. And the bringing in of the harvest to Jerusalem was a symbol that pointed forward to the future ingathering of the nations into the spiritual Jerusalem, the church. So in a sentence, to summarize this long introduction, in a sentence, here is the purpose of this vision of the man among the myrtles. It is to assure the church, when it looks more like a little shrub than a mighty redwood, that nevertheless the Lord is here. He tabernacles in our midst. And he will infallibly, infallibly fulfill his purposes, his promises, for the ingathering of the nations. Now in the second vision, in verse 18, Zechariah sees four horns, like these kind of horns, which scattered Judah. 
And then four craftsmen, he showed four craftsmen who were coming to cast down those horns. And I think it's instructed that Zechariah sees the horns, but he has to be shown the craftsmen who will hammer the horns down. Because we easily see problems and opposition. But we have to have our eyes opened like Elisha's servant to see the chariots of God and know that greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. And the third vision in chapter 2 is a vision of a man with a measuring line. You measure a city to see how big it is. And the answer of Zechariah is that it will be a city without walls because it will be a city of enormous size. You couldn't make walls big enough. Verse 11 says, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. So here again, we see the hope of the ingathering of peoples into the church. As surely as Jesus is coming back, so surely, so certain is the triumph of his mission to bring people from every nation into the church. So Jesus is the man with the measuring line. As we saw last week, the ultimate fulfillment of this is when Jesus comes and says, I will build my church. Now we come to the two central visions in chapters 3 and 4. This, this vision of the missionary expansion of the church, the latter glory of the temple, is a glorious vision. But it is easy for us to lose sight of it and fail to see it because of our own sin and self-reliance. So these two central visions are given to assure us that God is gracious and will accomplish his glorious purposes for us, even through sinners like us. So now I'm going to read the sermon text from chapter 3, and then I'll pray for us. Zechariah 3, 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus and ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that I might preach and we all might understand this word, which is so important for the health of the church in rebuilding the temple and bringing in the latter glory. May we understand what you have done for us by giving us the gift of righteousness. We ask for your help now. Come and fill us with your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we got three characters in chapter 3. The angel of the Lord, who is Jesus. we got Joshua, the high priest. And we've got Satan. And Satan is the accuser. In fact, that is what the word Satan means. So the text in Hebrew literally says, Satan was standing at his right hand, to Satan him, right? That's what the verb means, to accuse. Satan is the Hebrew verb for accuse. And this carries over into the New Testament as well. The Greek word for a slanderer is diabolos. When you accuse someone, it is a diabolical thing to do. 
When you slander someone, you're being satanic because Satan is the accuser. He tries to keep us from hoping in the promises of God by reminding us of our sins. And I want to recommend to you two passages of Scripture to memorize for use when you need to overcome Satan's accusations. Revelation, the first one's Revelation 12, 10 to 12. It says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the brothers, the Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And you've got to get that last phrase in there to really stick it to Satan, right? His time is short, right? I didn't make up this phrase, heard it somewhere, but whenever the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. <laughs> the other passage to memorize is Micah, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Quote scriptures like this when you are accused by the devil, but don't get into long conversations with him. If you're going to address him directly, do it briefly and use scripture like Jesus did in Matthew 4. Away from me, Satan, for it is written. Just quote the scriptures. Don't defend yourself. You don't need to. You're guilty. Just acknowledge your guilt and then trust in the blood of Christ. Look to Jesus because in verse 2 now of Zechariah 3, he is the one. Jesus is the one who rebukes Satan. And looks what he, look at what he says in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a brand, like a firebrand plucked from the fire? Has not the Lord chosen you? The doctrine of election is a very important truth for overcoming this accusation. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Romans 8.33 Who will bring any charge, accusation, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? A friend of mine tells of a life-changing experience he had where he received full assurance of his salvation from meditating on Deuteronomy 7.7. Here's what that says. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers that the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you. So the Lord didn't love you because you were big, or didn't love you because of anything about you, if you kind of take away all the extraneous words, that verse just says, the Lord loved you because he loved you. That's it. He loves you because he loves you. And that's good news, because if he loved you because you were righteous, 
then when you're not righteous, you would feel no hope. If he lo even if we said he loved you because you believe, then when you're struggling with doubt, you might have no hope. But if he loved you just because he loved you, then no stain upon you can possibly have anything to do with your acceptance before God. You are a brand snatched from the fire, and he grabbed you. You didn't grab him. It's his grip that keeps you, not your grip on him. When you lose your grip on him, he's still got a hold of you. Sometimes when the gospel is preached, we're told that it's as though Jesus has thrown out a life preserver, a flotation ring to you who are a drowning man or woman. But now it's up to you to reach out by faith and grab hold of that life preserver. But I don't think this is a great picture of our Savior. Here's a better one. So you're drowning. In fact, you've gulped in a bunch of seawater and you're already sinking like a stone. So you can't reach out and grab that life preserver. So Jesus dives in and he dives and swims down deep into the water and he grabs you and he drags you back to shore and he throws you onto the beach and you're unconscious and he tries to perform CPR on you but it's too late because you're dead. And then he stands above you and says, Arise! And you get up from the dead and you embrace him and you say, My Savior. That's how he saved you. He saved you to the uttermost. See, in the first picture of the life preserver, he doesn't really save you. He just makes it possible for you to save yourself. And it's just as possible for you to damn yourself by not reaching out and grabbing it. But in the second picture, he is your savior and saves you to the uttermost. And if you've been grabbed by this savior, you need fear no accusation for his grip on you will never fail. You can trust him. And your faith will overcome all the accusations of the evil one. And so Calvin wrote on this verse, Those men who at this day obscure and seek as far as they can to extinguish the doctrine of election are enemies to the human race, for they strive their utmost to subvert every assurance of salvation. I urge you, despise not the doctrine of election. When Moses was on the holy mount in Exodus 33, he prayed, show me thy glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. Moses asked to see glory and God showed him election. That's essential to what it means for God to be God. He chooses. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And if he has been gracious to you, it's because of his unconditional electing mercy and because of nothing in you. And therefore, he will never let you go because it's not about you. It's about the glory of his electing mercy. So the doctrine of election is one comfort when you are experiencing accusation. The other one I see here is the doctrine of imputation. And imputation is an accounting word. It means credited to your account. Joshua the high priest is in filthy garments, and then Jesus says he will clothe him in pure vestments. Note that he doesn't say, I'm going to make you into a person who does righteous things and doesn't get his clothes so filthy anymore. Although it's true that he does begin to change us progressively from the inside out when he saves us, it's important to see that this is not what he says here. That's not what he's talking about. What he says is, I will put righteousness 
on you. I will put on you these pure vestments. And this is really the essence of the gospel. I mean, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and before they sin, they're naked and unashamed. And then they sin, and now they're ashamed because they're aware of their guilt. And so what do they do? They make these fig leaf garments in order to try to hide and cover themselves, right? And Christ is offering us a robe of righteousness to cover us instead of these fig leaf garments that we are trying to cover ourselves with. And it doesn't really matter how elaborate your fig leaf garment is. It doesn't matter if you got more fig leaves on your garment than I do on mine. You're still going to feel exposed on Judgment Day in fig leaves. You need robes of righteousness. Christ does not offer you lessons in sowing fig leaves. He puts robes of righteousness on you and covers you. The righteousness by which you are saved is an alien righteous, we say, because it is not your own. It is the righteousness of another, Jesus, given to you. Justification is God crediting or imputing, crediting Jesus' righteousness to your account when you believe. So on Judgment Day, he looks at your account and he just sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's it. That's all justification does. Now, sanctification does more. Sanctification is the process where after God declares you righteous through your faith in Christ's death for you, he begins to progressively make you righteous. But here's the key. That inner transformation going on in you by the Holy Spirit is not the righteousness by which you are saved. The righteousness in which you are growing is not the righteousness by which you are saved. And I feel like that sentence is like the most important lesson I've ever learned. The righteousness in which you are growing is not the righteousness by which you are saved. In Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I want to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own. It's not my own. That comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So the righteousness by which you are saved is not your own righteousness. Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3 is not given needle and thread to make for himself a garment of righteousness with the help of the Lord. No. Rather, Christ puts a garment of righteousness on him. Church history professor Richard Loveless wrote this. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine of justification But in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance of their acceptance with God from their sincerity or from their past experience of conversion or their most recent religious performance or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform You are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance. So if you have, like most of us in this era, a tendency to morbid introspection and you look in your heart and on a bad day, you don't find much evidence there to strengthen your assurance. 
What you must not do is go buy a book on 43 ways to restore the joy of the spirit, and then once you get all your psychological furniture rearranged in your head, then maybe you'll have confidence again that you're saved. No, that's what this picture of Joshua in Zechariah 3 should cure us of. You don't need another baptism, a deeper work of the spirit, or a renewal conference. You just need to look outside of yourself to the cross. The cross of Christ is enough to save even a Christian. The way forward is the way back. Put your trust anew this morning in that cross, those nails, that blood, that empty tomb. That is our objective hope. The gospel is outside of us. The righteousness is not our own. The righteousness in which you are growing is not the righteousness by which you are saved. We are saved by Christ's righteousness, given freely to us like a pure vestment covering our filthy robes. Now, in order to make a transition from Zechariah 3 to Zechariah 4, I want to share with you something I learned years ago when I was preaching through the book of Galatians. That's why I had the liturgist read Galatians 5 this morning. Because in the first part of the book of Galatians, Paul deals with what we've been talking about, justification by faith alone. That's like the first half or more of the book of Galatians. He tells us that we are free from the curse of the law. And then in the last part of the book, he exhorts us to walk by the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. But what gripped me most in going through Galatians was establishing that connection between the two. Freedom from the curse of the law leads to freedom from sin. And this is counterintuitive. We often try to fight our sin by the law, by regulations and willpower. But if we really understand justification by faith alone, it will beget a certain kind of walking by the Spirit. A walk of communing with Christ in his word by hearing with faith. A walk of receiving strength from the Spirit by singing the praises of Christ with trust in his person and promises. I've long felt the centrality of communion with Christ in our Christian life, but through Galatians, I feel like I became doctrinally established in that conviction. Now I understand the reason for insisting on walking by the Spirit. It's because any other kind of legalistic walking allows for an occasion of boasting, puts the focus on my work instead of God's work, and robs glory from Christ. So let us not just be reformed in our doctrine. But let us allow the doctrines of grace to influence every step of our Christian walk. Every day let the doctrines of grace lead you to choose communion with Christ and reliance on the strength the Spirit supplies instead of trying to grind out a legalistic man-made righteousness. So I see now in Zechariah 3 and 4 the same relationship I found between the first and second halves of Galatians. In Zechariah 3, we learn that justification is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us once for all. And now in Zechariah 4, we see that the way to live out the obedience of faith before God is not by power, not by might, but by walking by the Spirit. I'll start reading Zechariah 4.1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, 
with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So Zerubbabel, we learned last week, was the governor of Judah, grandson of the king of, uh, of, of Judah, descendant of David, ancestor of Jesus. He's rebuilding the temple in their time, and it's all going to be done by grace, by uh, the Spirit. Notice that this vision begins more dramatically than the others. And all the others, Zechariah just sees things. Here he is awakened to see something. Zechariah is awakened and sees a vision of the glory of the church and God's promises and provision to the church. And we need this awakening. Revival is an awakening to see the awesome spiritual realities that are at work in our midst. And when that awakening comes, then the worldliness that usually occupies our minds fades away like a dream. And the waking of Joshua highlights the importance of this vision. The vision Zechariah sees is a vision of the church fulfilling its mission in the strength that God supplies. And so we learn that we individually must live the Christian life and we as a church must serve in Christ's mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. He sees a vision of a lampstand. And the churches in Revelation are later described as lampstands, right? For we're all lights to the nations. And on the top of this lampstand is a large bowl. The bowl contains oil through the, uh, the, the spouts coming into the lamp. And alongside the lampstand are two olive trees. Now, this is a great mystery. It's not really explained to us until verse 11. The two trees refer to the two leaders of the people, two main characters of chapters 3 and 4, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, the builder of the temple, the governor. But it refers to them as types of Christ. They prefigure Christ. Joshua pictures the priestly role. Zerubbabel pictures the kingly role. They all come together. They reach a conclusion in chapter 6. Uh, they come together into one person, the branch, the Messiah, Jesus. I wish I had more time to unpack that, but we have to move on. What are we supposed to get out of this vision? The interpretation is given in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. The oil in the bowl of the lamp is the spirit. We're not to live out the mission of Christ by our own resources or resolve, but by the spirit, otherwise we'll burn out. The Christian life is a holy supernatural life. It runs on supernatural fuel, the spirit. And this is so important that not only do I see it taught again and again in scripture, but I hear it again and again in the testimony of Christians, and you probably have too. It seems that just about every Christian who has tried to walk with Christ for a few years can tell a story of how God brought them to a place where they realized they couldn't live the Christian life by the sweat of their brow. Perhaps when they were burned out, God led them to Galatians 3.3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or another may tell of the turning point in their lives of learning to minister like Paul in Colossians 1.29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Or another will testify of recalling the peace that came into their life when the Lord illumined for them 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving 
by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ. God ordains that we serve in his strength so that he might get the glory. And God brings us to this realization again and again and again. We come to the end of our rope and realize we have to do it in the Spirit. So I hope you're thinking, okay, I get it. The mission of the church is his work. Therefore, I must serve in the power of his Spirit. Now, how do I do that? How do I receive that power? How do I receive the fullness of the Spirit? Receiving the Spirit must not be disconnected from faith in the cross of Christ. Zechariah 4 must not be disconnected from Zechariah 3. You don't graduate from the elementary truths of the gospel in chapter 3 and then move on to the higher life of the Spirit in chapter 4. No. You are filled with the Spirit as you exult in the imputed righteousness of Christ, in the robe of righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ, to take from what is Christ and make it known to you, to help you to understand what you have in Christ, that you are covered by his righteousness. So the fullness of the Spirit comes as you behold Christ. So seek a Christ-centered fullness of the Holy Spirit. As we prepare now to come to the Lord's table, let me remind you of one detail regarding the crucifixion that we read in John 19.34. It says that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now we probably understand already the meaning of the blood. We speak of being washed in the blood and we rightly mean forgiveness. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, writes John elsewhere. But what about the water? Well, the water is a symbol in the book of John of the Holy Spirit. John 7, 39, Jesus said that streams of living water will flow from within us, and by this he meant the Holy Spirit. So the cleansing water is a picture of the fullness of the Spirit, purification, sanctification by the Spirit. So I believe that the hymn Rock of Ages gets it exactly right. Let the water and the blood from thy ribbon side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So the blood cleanses from the guilt of sin. The water of the Spirit cleanses from the power of sin. But the important thing to see in John 19 is that both the blood and the water come out of the side of the crucified Jesus. So it's as you kneel at the foot of the cross, the blood of Jesus pours down upon you, but also the water of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you at the same time. So where do you go for the forgiveness of your sins? The foot of the cross. And where do you go for the fullness of the Holy Spirit? The foot of the cross. Where do you go for power to overcome sin and engage in rebuilding the temple and the in-time expansion of the ministry of the church? You go to the foot of the cross. The Holy Spirit is poured out at the foot of the cross. So again, go back and place your faith in that cross, those nails, that blood, that empty tomb, and trust in the righteousness of Christ once for all credited to your account. And as the joy of your salvation is restored and you exult in the grace of God, you will be filled up to serve in his mission 
with the strength his spirit supplies. Amen.